I'm sure many of you have had this experience, the wonder of a family reunion. Any of you been there? I've been to family reunions of various types periodically in my life. And when you go to a family reunion, often at times, there'll be some individuals there that you really don't recognize. Uh, a few years ago, uh, we had such a reunion, actually in Ireland, when my three siblings and I took my father uh, to one of his last trips to Northern Ireland to see some of his family members there. And while there, we gathered the farmhouse of one of his cousins, Jimmy Colgan, and had a gathering there with other relatives. And as we came, they were so gracious, so welcoming. And as we went in and sat down together, you know, it's kind of intriguing, those settings. Uh, who do you think I sat down with? Without thinking, just naturally went and sat down with my siblings. Because they're the ones I knew, you know, were, know each other well, were familiar with one another. It was just unthinking. I mean, they're the ones I feel most comfortable with, most at ease with. We, we have shared stories, experiences together. So we sat down there, and there the four of us sat, of, of our nuclear family, uh, along with these relatives gathered in this large Irish farmhouse, and fragrance of peat coming from the fireplace. In a cross room sat these closely related strangers of the same family, same ancestry, same roots, but of significantly different cultures and life journeys. And I think it would have been something of an intriguing sociological study to just watch that room at that time. Because for the first segment of time, the conversation really began very stiltedly. It was hesitant. And there were these pregnant pauses. Because really, they were tillers of the soil. They weren't big conversationalists. So we were asking them all of the questions, trying to keep a conversation going. And it seemed like all they wanted to do was stare at these odd relatives from the new world. So that was what it was like until my 85-year-old father and his similarly elderly cousin started sharing the old stories and started reminiscing. And a box of photos was brought out with my pictures of my father as a young boy when he visited there many decades ago. And the stories started to be shared about our shared great-grandfather, Alexander McLean. And with that, the volume of conversation jumped exponentially, the laughter increased, and then the food came out. Can you picture that setting in an Irish farmhouse? How good was that? And it was like in this quick transition, we were a family reminiscing together because we did share the same blood, and we could all point back to our great grandfather, Alexander McLean, from whom all of us in that room came. And it just simplified things. We all got our life from him. You know, we're walking through this study of different traditions and denominations of the Christian faith in the coming weeks as well. And during the study, we're going to be looking at some traditions with which you feel very close, I would guess, very familiar. They might feel to you like brothers or sisters. You worship in the same way. They use the same terminology. They talk about salvation with familiar phrases. I've accepted Jesus into my heart. But there are other traditions we're going to be looking at and considering, like the spiritual relatives we're looking at today, who seem to be speaking a foreign language with a totally different frame of reference, which might even prompt you to think, 
we cannot be related to them, can we? <laughs> but when you look at each of these authentic Christian traditions that we're examining, you realize that we all do look to the same Father. We all call out to Jesus. We all get our life through him, and we all depend on the same Holy Spirit. Someone asked me the question, Clyde, aren't, are you a bit concerned in the series that some people might decide to kind of leave Southview and go to other kinds of churches? And actually, I'd consider that something of success. If, if individuals within our body thought, you know, th that other authentic Christian tradition really connects with what I believe and who I am, how I want to worship in a different kind of way, and, and that would be okay. And, and actually, I'd consider it a special success if certain specific people would leave Southview. <laughs> I'm joking. Don't, you know, you're right. <clears throat> but regardless of our tradition, uh, we want to recognize that all these other authentic Christian traditions, they're all in the same spiritual family as us. If they are seeking to know and follow Jesus as Lord and Savior and bring glory and honor to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then the reality is we can learn from them. And as I said last week, our objective in this series, it's, it's not to try to tear down these other traditions or denominations to, to push ourselves forward as the most prominent one in any kind of way. But rather, our objective in this series is to better understand them, that we actually might better understand the range of expressions within the body of Christ, so that we, by doing that, I believe we will better understand our own journey of faith, because we're talking about our ancestors here. And additionally, we might learn from them in how we might love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and all our strength. Amen? That's our desire in this. So this week, we're turning to our cousins in Eastern Orthodoxy. And that's a church which numbers 250 million members in the world. As we touched on last week, Eastern Orthodoxy, and by that phrase Eastern Orthodoxy, they don't use that title. I, I'm using that. They would just refer to themselves as the Orthodox Church, and we'll talk a bit about that. Range of expressions, Greek, Russian, other beyond that. But Eastern Orthodoxy in general claims to be the tradition that holds most closely and, and is most faithful to the traditions and teachings of the early church, the apostolic faith. In fact, if you go to a worship gathering in the Orthodox Church today, the, the prayers that are read, the divine liturgy you walk through, much of it will be from the 3rd or 4th or 5th centuries. Yeah, think about it. Even Roman Catholicism, they've modified their liturgy somewhat over time. But in Orthodoxy, if you go to an Orthodox worship gathering, you feel like you're going back in time in some way. Like you are connecting with worship from 1,600 years ago in some ways. So not much like last week, this is how we're going to be guided in our study of them. Three main questions we're going to ask. For one, we're going to ask, where did Eastern Orthodoxy come from again? And, and then from that, look at what do they believe? What do they teach in Eastern Orthodoxy? And then thirdly, we're going to look at what we can learn from them together. Now, in this study today, you might think as we go through part of this, hey, Clyde, you're repeating yourself from, from last week a bit. Part of that is intentional. I, I really want some of this stuff to stick. I'd love for all of it to stick, but my, I'm setting the bar low. I want some of it to stick with us and mold us in this. All right? 
So let's begin with that first question again. Where did the Eastern Orthodox Church come from? Where did it come from? And for this, let's again do a bit of background study, church history to a degree. I mean, you remember that largely for the first millennia of the church, about the first 1,000 years, there largely weren't different traditions within the church. There were some small branches, but mainly there was just one church. The one holy Catholic church, small c, Catholic. And when significant differences arose then, what would take place in the early century of the church was that representatives from churches across the nations would come together and gather for a council in which different theological matters would be discussed. And at these councils, again, representatives from all the cities and regions would come together. They'd seek to build a consensus, seek to be led by the Spirit in understanding what is this faith about? Because they didn't have near the understanding that we did do today. So the first council was called in 325 AD. It was the Council of Nicaea. Now, Nicaea, as you look at it here, is in present-day Turkey. It's really kind of almost a suburb now of modern Istanbul. So in Nicaea, and at this gathering, there were roughly around 300 bishops that gathered together, and they began to work out together, how do we understand and explain this faith? Because there was a key question before the church. It was around Jesus, and the question was, was Jesus created by the Father as a man named Arius was teaching, or was Jesus begotten? Was he eternally existent along with the Father? Now, we just take that for granted, kind of. It was a key question before them. So they gathered there and said, what do we understand about this? Could, can you imagine being there? Looking around that room, one of the guys that was there was Nicholas of Myra. You all know him. You know him as Saint Nicholas? the basis of the Santa Claus legend. So you would have gotten his autograph for sure, I'm sure, if you went there. <laughs> so in this gathering, they discussed this, they debated, they sought God's will on this, and, and from that enormous consensus, all but two of the bishops said, we believe Jesus, and understand, Jesus wasn't created by God, he's eternally existent with God. So only just a couple of bishops went off and continued teaching this now identified as false teaching around Jesus. So amazing gathering there. And out of that Nicaea Council, they then developed the Nicene Creed. Remember last week we talked about the different creeds. And this was a summary, this leadership of the church, essentially worldwide, saying, this is what we understand about our faith. This is how we summarize it. Now the Nicene Creed is both older than, noticeably longer than, and more expansive than the Apostles' Creed that we touched on and declared last week together. And the Nicene Creed, though, has great unity in the body of Christ. Roman Catholics declare the Nicene Creed. Lutherans, the Anglicans, the Evangelicals declare it. And Eastern Orthodoxy, in every one of their worship gatherings, declare the Nicene Creed together. So it seemed appropriate that on this day, we join together with the church around the world and make that declaration together and read this 4th century declaration about our faith. And as we do that, and it'll be a bit longer, I want you to be thinking, these are the core truths of our faith. All right, so let's stand together. In the fireside area as well, Mosaic, let's stand, and let's make this declaration in response to the question, church, what do we believe? Let's declare it. 
We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Did you notice that was longer? <laughs> With that, more expansive, certainly. So as we mentioned last week, creeds like the Nicene Creed, these were powerful, unifying forces in the body of Christ. But at the same time, along with the unity that was being expressed in that first millennia, at the same time, there were these major geopolitical realities that began to kind of bring seismic shifts culturally. The Roman Empire began to collapse, if you remember. The western part of the empire weakened. The eastern part began to grow stronger. Language differences had more prominence between the Greek of the east and the Latin of the west. There were significant cultural differences between the East and Western cultures and the empire even of that day. The East and West, you could just say, they just thought differently. They had different philosophical categories. You know what I mean by that? You ever hear it said that Western diplomats have a challenging time in diplomacy with Middle Eastern countries often? It's often because our framework, our manner of thinking, our philosophical categories are so wildly different at times. It's difficult to communicate even though it seems we're using the same language. And that was the very same reality present in the interactions between the Eastern and Western church of that first millennia. Like their culture, the early Eastern church, understand this, they were, they were more interested in experience. They were more comfortable, actually, with mystery in what they understood about God. In the West, though, the West, though, it wanted things explained very carefully. They were more interested in juridical models, judicial models of understanding how things operate, how we process information. So there were differences that developed between the church in the East and West across the Roman Empire. And, and look at this, if you remember that time when Constantine became the emperor of the Roman Empire, what he did was, if we throw the map up there, boom, uh, he shifted the capital from Rome in the west to Constantinople in the east. That's old Byzantium, present-day Istanbul. And with that, understandably, that brought shifts religiously in the culture of that day. Because for the eastern church, 
Now in Constantinople, they began to think we should have more prominence. We are the new Rome. The bishop of Rome now is just overseeing the old Rome, the old capital city. So these kind of challenges arose in that time. And, and so between the Pope, Il Papa, of the Roman church, and the patriarch of Constantinople. And that then leads us as a bridge to our second question. In Eastern Orthodoxy, what do they teach? What, what do they believe? And I'm going to try to keep this succinct, but I, I, I want you to catch this together. And it's, we're going to touch on some of this more in our third question. But I think we could simply put it this way. What does the Eastern Orthodox Church teach? They teach and hold to the Nicene Creed. If you want to know what they teach. With the exception of one word. Now, in addition to the cultural shifts and questions of authority that were going on, which bishop should lead, there were these doctrinal differences that started rising up between the eastern and western parts of the church. And the most prominent example of doctrinal difference was in the Nicene Creed. When the western church added one Latin word to the Nicene Creed. In fact, you could almost say that the Christian church divided over one Latin word. The Latin word was filioque. Just say that with me, will you? Filioque. I want you to remember that because that is a profound word in church history. It simply means, and from the Son, or and the Son. Now, it comes from this part of the uh, creed that we just read, this portion that we just expressed together. When it speaks of the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, again, understand this. In the Eastern Church, they, they understood and believed that the Holy Spirit only proceeded from God the Father. It was the Spirit of God the Father. The Western Church believed that the Holy Spirit came from God the Father and from God the Son. Now what happened was, the Western church and the Pope added filioque and the Son to the Nicene Creed without consulting the Eastern church. So now it wasn't just a matter of doctrinal difference, now it was a matter of authority. Who had the right to change the creed? Understand how profound this was. Even in our day, it might be difficult to catch some of the elements of it. But these profound shifts. And so the result of that was battlegrounds began to be formed in this way. And by 1054, the division had grown so strongly that after squabbling over who really was in authority and whether that phrase should be in the creed or not, the Roman Pope, the Bishop of Rome, excommunicated the Patriarch of Constantinople and all his followers... And the patriarch of Constantinople excommunicated the bishop of Rome, the pope, and all his followers. And there was the great schism. Stunning, isn't it? So let me just pause for a second to ask, so, so does the Holy Spirit only come from the Father? And again, this has been debated by Catholics and Orthodox individuals for over a thousand years. But like a good Protestant, I would suggest what? Let's start a new denomination. <laughs> no. No, a good Protestant would say, what does Scripture say about this? So let's just see, for example, let's go to the Gospel of John. 
And in John chapter 15, verse 26, we read this. <clears throat> Jesus said, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus himself saying, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. In a way, Jesus saying, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God the Father. That makes sense? Okay, now let's look at Paul's words. Go over to Galatians. In, in Galatians chapter 4, Galatians 4 and verse 6, we'd read this. And because you are sons, God has sent whom? The Spirit of his Son, the Spirit of Christ, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now understand, as Paul writes here, the New Testament repeatedly refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of the Son, the Spirit of Christ. So we would ask, is the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, is the Holy Spirit the Spirit of the Father? John, we'd say yes. Is the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ? Also, the Spirit of the Son? Galatians, we'd say yes. It took him a thousand years. We're done in like three minutes. Look at that. Now, I understand there are, there are manifold theological nuances about this that we're not going to get into. But, but let's just, why do you have that? Now, back to Eastern Orthodoxy. The church splits in two. We have the scene. And the Western Christians, as I mentioned last week, the rest in Western Christians call themselves the Catholic Church. Eastern Christians call themselves the Orthodox Church. Let's throw it up there. Next picture. Boom. There we go. You have that picture. Now, that's significant. Understand by the Eastern Church calling themselves the Orthodox Church, what does the word Orthodox mean? Do you remember? It, it means right beliefs or, or right doctrine. Right opinion is another way. Right teaching. So by the Orthodox Church saying, we have the right beliefs, what are they saying about anyone who is outside the Orthodox Church? Right, you're wrong. You have the wrong beliefs. You have the wrong doctrine. You have the wrong teaching. They're staking a position here and making a claim by their very name. And the Orthodox Church still says, if you want the fullness of truth, you need to become an Orthodox Christian. I've, I've talked to Orthodox priests about this and, and often will ask them a question. Tell me, what is your perspective? What do you think the status is of us Protestants or of Roman Catholics? And the response typically would be something like, and it, it always is kindly and, and clear, you know, we don't fully know, we don't presume to judge as God alone is a judge, but we can only tell you, we have the truth. We are the Orthodox Church, and you are outside of that. Now, clearly, I disagree with them, according to our understanding of Scripture. But we need to understand, in understanding orthodoxy, you need to understand that is the view of the Orthodox Church. That's what they teach. And, and really, that's essentially what the Roman Catholic Church would say about themselves as well. And, and so understanding this again, I want to just review this. Every Christian, every church has their own view of church history. And as we saw in general, this is how the Roman Catholic Church would view the first millennia of church history, that there was one apostolic church. And then with the great schism in 1054, this is what happened. The Catholic church remained unchanged and faithful, and it was the Eastern Orthodox church that went sideways. We had that picture, and then we'd ask our Orthodox friends, tell us your picture of church history. Now watch the red line, and they would say it's this. They remained unchanged. The Catholic church went sideways. 
And they would also say in the 1500s with the Reformation, the Protestant church split off from an already errant Catholic church. Let me be clear, we don't agree with that understanding. And we'll be getting into that more along the way. But, but that's how they would understand things in that kind of way. Now, that might bother some of you as you look at that. I mean, I have significant disagreements over that with the Orthodox Church. In fact, I, I, as a pastor, I, I struggle with one particular church saying, we have all the truth, and you cannot know the truth apart from our little one church. But understand this, since 1054, this has been the great East-West schism in the body of Christ. And so to summarize this point, so you have this, if someone would come up to you this week, maybe they will, and say, why did the one church divide initially? You could say this. Well, for one, it was because of cultural difference. East-West, right? Remember that. Secondly, you could say, because of the question of authority, who has the right to rule? Which bishop is to lead? And thirdly, you would break out your Latin and say, filioque, questions on the Holy Spirit and his source from the Godhead. That's what we understand from this. And again, that's what has continued for centuries. But can I, can I slip in a profound, hopeful picture here? This is a picture, actually, from the recent installment of the most current bishop of Rome, Pope Francis, on the left there, back last March. The man he's embracing is the current patriarch of Constantinople, the leader of the Orthodox Church, Patriarch Bartholomew. Now understand this. This is the first time the Patriarch of Constantinople has been at the inauguration of a new pope since before the Great Schism of 1054. It's been over a thousand years since the Orthodox Patriarch came to the installment of a pope. So you think that's significant? I would say yes. That's a healthy step in the body of Christ. And again, you might be thinking, so Clyde, why does it all matter to us? <laughs> and, and for several reasons, but for one, I want to say this. Because friends, this is our family history. We didn't kind of just jump over all of this. As Protestant often says, this is part of our heritage. It's our spiritual ancestry that has actually molded us in ways we're going to be looking at. And we're going to be enfolding that in coming weeks. But, but now let's look at our third question. And it's simply this. So what can we learn from our Eastern Orthodox friends? And, and in this, i got to tell you, I, I, I wish we could look more into the sacraments in the Orthodox Church. They, they hold the seven sacraments, much like the Roman Catholic Church does. And, and, and their perspective on them, like the Eucharist, like baptism, is the mystery of them that they uphold just so beautifully in a range of ways. And, and I wish we could look at their perspective on baptism. I mean, the, their perspective on baptism, kind of a bit different from us. They wouldn't see baptism as just kind of an outward sign of a, a moral declaration of an inward spiritual rebirth. But they believe that a baptism, uh, really, it's an act of a person's death and resurrection in Jesus. That, that at baptism, a person in some spiritual way is participating in the events of Easter. Kind of profound. 
I, I wish we could look more at their worship uh, even. Because if you go to most Orthodox churches, there's no musical instruments, which some of you would delight in, I know. And, and actually, there's very little participation from the congregation, apart from reciting the Nicene Creed like we just did. Generally, as you go to an Orthodox service, the first time I went, it was so odd, you are just observing, essentially, the whole thing. As a priest, really, in some spiritual sense, engages with God and reenacts the death and resurrection of Jesus in the Eucharist. It's fascinating in that way. But they believe by observing, we are entering into a cosmic reality. And, and so I really, I'd encourage you, consider attending an Orthodox service sometime. I mean, it'll, it, it'll be healthy for you, I, I would think. And it will be so clear to you as you walk through that, this is not a contemporary Western service. It isn't. It's an ancient Eastern service that you'll walk through. So again, what can we learn from Orthodoxy? And I'm going to just touch on three learnings. And again, there are more than this, but I'll, I'll note three. And we could echo what we said last week about the Catholic Church. But let me touch on three different ones, all right? And one thing I think we can learn from the Orthodox Church is this. God is pursuing us. Would you just say that phrase with me? God is pursuing us. There was an Orthodox priest spoke with Father Timothy, and he explained their understanding of the gospel in this way. He said, Jesus has said to me, Father Timothy, I, I have found you. Even though you turned away from me, even though you are a sinner, I have picked you up. And now because I've gathered you, you will live eternally and that's what we celebrate each and every Sunday. Now, I don't know if you're catching that, but in our Western churches, we tend to think that we are the ones searching for God. In fact, think of some of our terminology. Maybe you've often heard it referred to, particularly in a North American church, about spiritual seekers, that term. We are seekers after God. But, but it's intriguing to note that, that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 3.11, no one understands. No one seeks God. Uh, likewise, it many, some of you might remember from a number of years ago, there was an evangelism project called the I Found It Campaign with bumper stickers. And, and, and that bumper sticker that we were put on the back of our cars, by saying I found it, it was implying I found God. Now, our Orthodox friends, I think, have a better understanding. <laughs> you know what? No one understands, no one seeks God. God is always prior. He is the initiator of relationship. I, I just, I love the picture they draw out, that God is always going after us. He's the initiator. He's seeking to bring us back in the fold. He's not merely waiting somewhere, waiting to be found. He is constantly reaching out to us. And again, I love that picture of God being the seeker, him pursuing us in love. In fact, the Orthodox Church often points back to the Genesis, the Eden story, and that picture of Adam after the fall, hiding from God, and what does God do? He goes through the garden looking for him. And, and so that's something I believe we can learn and benefit from the Orthodox Church. And perhaps it'd be beneficial for you to hear that today. As you are here today, I don't care where your heart is spiritually, God is pursuing you. He is coming after you. He's wanting to draw you to himself. And I believe that's something we would benefit from learning from the Orthodox Church. And then a second learning from our Orthodox friends. And it is this. 
It's Christus Victor. Redemption from death. Say that with me, even though you don't know what it means. Christus Victor, redemption from death. Now here as well, in our Western churches, when, when we talk about salvation, we emphasize how original sin was passed on from the fall to all humanity. And so each of us, we speak of, each of us therefore is born into sin. And so our emphasis in the West tends to be on how do we take care of that sin, the sin issue? How do we have our sin atoned for? How do we have the debt paid that we owe to God? And so again, it's a very juridical, it's a kind of a courtroom understanding of the gospel. And that's a model for explaining, for one, what took place on the cross. As Christ, what did he do there? He paid the penalty for our sin. And it's also a way for explaining what takes place at salvation. We use terminology like our sin is forgiven, our debt is paid. Again, very legal, juridical language. Now, where some of us are so familiar with that, we think, doesn't the whole world speak that way? We'll understand that perspective on salvation is absolutely biblical. Certainly, just read through the book of Romans. But the Orthodox Church, I think, in fact, they could benefit from the understanding we have about that atonement model as it's spoken of. But that's not the only model or image that Scripture uses to speak of salvation. So rather than emphasizing how original sin has been passed on from the fall, the Orthodox Church would do this, and they do this. They would emphasize how death got passed on with the fall. And with death came brokenness, really an inability to seek God again. So we have this propensity to hurt one another. We, we lack peace. We're, we're afraid in life. We're alienated from God. So their picture, their understanding of the cross is at the cross, Jesus came to deliver us from death and deliver us from the enemy, from the forces of darkness. So Jesus, above all, he is the conqueror of death. He's the conqueror of darkness. He is Christus victor, Christ the victor. It really is, again, in the Orthodox Church, a far more cosmic understanding, a battlefield understanding of salvation. And really, it's actually more in line with the way the Apostle Paul describes it in his letter to the church in Colossae. In, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, listen to this. For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him who is head of all rule and authority. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Got that picture? That, that is the imagery they use. So God's purpose for us is not only to be forgiven, it's to experience life, new life in God, in Christ. To experience the fullness of God's presence in your life. And that happens from the Holy Spirit. It, it happens through the divine liturgy as they walk through every weekend. So understand this. In Christ the victor, you're invited to experience the life and love of God. You are not just a forgiven sinner. Catch this. You are not just a forgiven sinner. You are a viceroy of the kingdom of God. Isn't that a great picture? And that's biblical. Some from our Orthodox brothers and sisters, I think we can learn and, and celebrate of Christus Victor, of the redemption we have, both from sin but from death in a new life. And then the third learning I'll just touch on that we can gain from them is simply this. 
It's remembering where the real world exists. You just say that phrase with me. Where the real world exists. You know, I, I've had conversations with individuals every so often and, and had them say to me as we talk about spiritual matters, okay, Clyde, it, that it's one thing to, to live that way in the church, but in the real world, this is how it works. Let me, let me tell you how it works. And in the Orthodox tradition, they would say, you have it completely backwards. The real world is foreshadowed in the body of Christ, in the church. You're actually living. We're living here in a land of shadows. I mean, this life around, that's not real. Eight to five, that's not reality. I mean, it feels real to us now, but compared to all eternity, the vastness of God's kingdom, where, where we live now is, is just like a shadow land. Compared to the wonder, the vastness of the kingdom of God, we live in shadows. I mean, you're going to live 70, 80, 90 years, perhaps, and, and this life will be gone, and, and it's just a shadow. It's going to feel like a passing vapor compared to the breadth of eternity. I mean, you think presidents, you think prime ministers have power or, or truly rule? <laughs> They're just over some acres of land for a few years. But there's a king who rules over all in this world. And that's what orthodoxy can help remind us of. Remember where the real world exists. So when you come to an orthodox place of worship, you're coming to remember what is the real world. And so they intentionally have images, symbols up in their gathering places that are intended to charge you, to fill you with faith so you can go on living faithfully and expressing the kingdom of God in this world we live in. I mean, you might have noticed that most Orthodox churches, have you noticed this? Most of them have kind of a domed roof or bubble roof of some kind. That's intentional. It's intended to communicate something of the cosmos, the sky of heaven. And then when you go into an Orthodox church and look up at the interior dome, you know what you typically see? Jesus. <laughs> looking down upon you. And, and that's meant to remind you that although you may not see it, Jesus is always looking down upon you. There hasn't been a moment this past week, there's not gonna be a moment in the coming week where Jesus is not watching over you. And then you would even look around one of their buildings and you'd see on the wall these pictures, these icons, these blessed pictures, they would say, that depict images of Jesus or stories of Scripture or of some of the individuals of faith that gone on before us in serving God faithfully. And in that kind of way, icons can be helpful in even in gathering places, really. I've got one up in my office. And, and they're not to worship, but to, to let it be mindful of us, remind us of ways we can be encouraged in our own faith. And, and even as we gather for worship, reminded of those who've gone before us in faith. I mean, I, I would guess, have, have you ever come here to a gathering on a weekend and felt like, man, man, the, the challenges are just too great right now. You ever come here and kind of feel weighted down? Like you're not sure how you can continue on with things or the decisions before you feel too heavy? So maybe one of the things would help, be helpful is you came in and gathered and said, there's an icon of Polycarp. Now, Polycarp, if you know, was from the second century. He was actually born as an orphan, lived his early life as a pagan. But then he came to be found by Jesus. And along that path, he became a pastor, became a bishop. And, and he ministered in the city of Smyrna, and again in present-day Turkey. In the year 167, during the time of great persecution of Christians, Polycarp was taken before the Roman courts and, and told, 
You will live only if you denounce Jesus and declare the reality of the Roman gods. So Polycarp stood there, a life, literally, a life decision before him. And he said, I cannot exchange the better for the worse. You think that gained him any favor? And so the result of the court was this. He was taken outside to be burned at the stake. He was set on an unlit pyre. And the soldiers came to nail him to the stake so they wouldn't move when the fire was initiated. And history tells us that, that Polycarp said this, leave me as I am. The one who gives me strength to endure the Father will also give me strength to stay quite still on the pyre, even without the precaution of your nails. So, so there he stood, remaining faithful, declaring by his presence, I am standing with Jesus as the fire was lit around him. And history gives this account. Bound as he was, with hands behind his back, he stood like a mighty ram, chosen out for sacrifice from a great flock, a worthy victim ready to be made offered to God. And as the fire was lit, and as the flames raised, he looked up to heaven and prayed, Lord Almighty God, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, I bless you for judging me worthy of this day, this hour, so that in the company of the martyrs, I may share the cup of Christ, your anointed one. You think we could benefit from coming here on a weekend going, I remember Polycarp. I know the challenges before me, the difficulties. I remember his faithfulness. And I remember it's the Holy Spirit that strengthened him. And it's Jesus that still watches over me just as he watched over Polycarp. Our Orthodox friends, they remind us that, that we can be encouraged, we can be molded, mindful of, of the great men and women of faith who have gone before us, uh, living in light of a, a different kingdom, a, a real world. Because reality is this. There will be a day when we encounter Polycarp in the world to come, and now you know his story. But while we're here, we are charged. We are called by Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit to live out the kingdom this week and express the real world to those around us. So let me close as we begin by reading these words from the epistle to Hebrews, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Amen? Pray with me, we. Father, we thank you for the witness of the Orthodox Church. And we pray that we would learn from them, Father. I, I, I pray that we would celebrate your Son as truly as Christus Victor, the one who has brought us out of death to life, the conqueror of darkness. And I pray we would know and experience your life and your love. And, and, and Father, I would pray for the Orthodox Church, even for its leadership, would you guide them towards Jesus? And, and Father, where patterns of life or religiosity can at times get in the way, perhaps, I, I pray your gospel would ring forward.
And they would continue to celebrate and know you through him. We pray that for ourselves as well. To you, the giver of life, and to your son, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And all God's people say, amen.